Hey folks, it's Mark Marin, and this is a very special episode of WTF. This is our 200th episode. I'm amazed that we made it this far. I'm so thrilled that everybody enjoys the show, and I'm and I'm I couldn't be more excited that there's plenty more to do. I really love doing this thing, and as you know, I I have uh, these fits of gratitude occasionally. Well, I just want to say thank you to all of you that enjoy the show, that support the show, that come out to the live shows, that come out to the shows of the comics I interview. It's just been an amazing uh, couple of years. So I wanted to do something interesting. I know a lot of you have requested uh, that I interview myself. Well, I couldn't really do that without sounding ridiculous. So I was in contact with Mike Berbiglia, who was out here in L.A., and I said, look, Mike, would you like to interview me uh, as host of my show? Would you like to host WTF and have me as your guest and you interview me? This is what I said to Mike Berbiglia, and he said yes. And he did his homework, and uh, it was very interesting. And I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm excited to, uh, to listen to this interview because I don't know what I said. This is Mike Berbiglia, guest hosting WTF, interviewing Mark Marin. That's me. He's interviewing me. Lock the gate! Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? WTF. And it's also... Ah, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. What the fuckers? All right. What the fuck buddies? Yeah. What the fuck nuts? Okay. What the fucker nuts? Yeah, all right. Um, I'm Mike Berbiglia, and I'm filling in this week for Mark Marin, who is um, uh, not available to host, but he is available. Uh, for uh, an exclusive interview, um, he's going to. I'm going to interview him this week. I think that went pretty well. Yes, yeah, I'm not going to chime in like that. You know, it's your show from here on out. Okay. I'm not going to. I'm not going to sabotage it. I'm just going to. I'm sitting on the other side. I just want people to know that. And I'm just. I'm the only thing I'm doing that I usually do is just watching the levels. Okay. And I am. Uh, let's see. I just picked up your CD. Tickets still available, which is not your recent one. No, that's the second one. The, the the recent one is called Final Engagement. Right. And I was actually curious, um, the, doesn't that have a sense of finality to it, Final Engagement? Yes. That it's your last album, like you're retiring like Jay-Z or something? I like didn't that? know. I, I genuinely didn't know whether or not I was going to retire. Really? On some level. Huh. I, so it was intentional. Right. Well, there there's a trilogy feeling to it. There's Not Sold Out, yes. which is the first one. I love then. the titles of your albums. Right. Not and, sold out, and then tickets still available, and then final engagement. Right. When I did final engagement, I, you know, I, I just been left by my wife, mm-hmm. probably a few months before that. You know, it was inconclusive what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I was uh, miserable. I was, you know, suicidal. I, you know, I was not. So when you say suicidal, you mean literally? I thought about it. Did you have? Do you have plans? No, no, I didn't have plans. I, you know, you know, it just, I just, I thought about it because I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, I was, I was trying to figure out if I needed to stop doing comedy, what would I do? Because I, I just was at the end of my rope. So, final engagement not only worked for the end of the trilogy, but I honestly didn't. You know, I felt like somehow or another this, this was it. 
And the tone of that record, I, I literally called Dan Schwissel from Stand Up Records and I said, uh, I got to do something. You know, I'm in the middle of this thing. I, I, I talk about, um, you know, my life on stage and, you know, I've been talking about it. So let's just fucking do it. Can you meet me in Seattle in like, it was like three weeks or six weeks. Wow. I booked a weekend and let's just turn the thing on and see what happens. Yeah. So on some level, it was definitely the end of something. I'm glad it didn't turn out to be the end of, of my comedy career, but you'll, I don't think you're going to hear me with that tenor of anger. I don't, I don't think that my tone, that like I listened to that thing and uh, my anger was so grounded and so genuine that I could just, I could feel it. it. It may not have been about exactly what I was talking about, but my tone was had a clarity that I was literally trying to you know, not fall apart. Yeah. And I, I like it all right. You know, but it, I think it was the end of that that era of Mark Marin. Yeah, I think it's a great album. I mean, one of the things about your comedy that I'm going to get to uh, for, to people listening um, on their computers or iPods right now. I have collected uh, questions okay. from your pa- a lot of your past guests. No, you have not. I did. Yeah, and the reason I did that <laughs> was that I felt inadequate to be the person interviewing you for your 200th episode which is what you're listening yeah. to right now like and who like who did you like who I, are you gonna tell me people. when, when yeah, you yeah oh my god As that's we go yeah that's insane and uh <laughs> oh no well because i was like you know because the, the way that this episode came about is i emailed you and i said why don't we do one again because last one was all about how we hate each other not hate each other but you hated me yeah and then i just kind of took it and then and then you apologize you know we, yeah. we talked it through yeah. in the episode people yeah. can dig that up if they want right and then i was like well we should have an episode where we actually talk about what we do okay you know i was like i should listen to your albums you should listen to my albums that's what i emailed you. that was the, that was the concept and then you wrote back yeah i don't like that concept <laughs> <laughs> you wrote back i like he's like you're like i, I want to do another episode i just don't like that concept so let's Let's think of another concept. Yeah. I said, "Well, I I listen. I've listened to most of the episodes of this of this podcast. There's uh, 198 episodes, or 199. This is the 200th. So why don't we just talk about that?" And you wrote back, "I've got a great idea." <laughs> this is where you this is where you did the network executive thing, where yeah. you take the idea that you've just been given by the artist and then you rename it yours. Yeah. You go, I've got a great idea. Yeah. Mark Marin as told by Mike Birbiglia for the 200th episode. And I said, sure. I said the thing that you say to network executives when they take your ideas and they reform them as their own, you go, that's a great idea. And that's what I said and that's why we're here. Uh-huh. So I, I felt inadequate to, um, to be the only person a- asking questions and so I... Uh, I just I, I, I called I, I I just emailed people and some people didn't respond but but a I'd lot like of, those a names. lot of people did I'd like the names of the people that didn't respond I mean you're a you're you're a big comic who doesn't respond to Mike Birbiglia's email Well I'll, I'll, we can get into it in a second okay. but you know um, we'll you know what we'll start Judd Apatow had a question mm. he's an avid listener of the uh, podcast mm. and he said. Um, Ask Mark what his dad thinks about it when he speaks so brutally, honestly, about him on the podcast. Well, my dad, honestly, I don't think has figured out how to listen to this. But I can speak to that 
in terms of my comedy. Um, for some reason, my father being the type of person he is that I, I in when I was growing up, I was really the only guy who could make him laugh. So even when I was insulting him, and, and I've done this to people in my life, like I could shit on my dad to his face with a precision that would really upset people. But because it cut so close to him and it sort of forced him to, you know, engage with it, he would laugh hysterically. Like, mm-hmm. I can make my father laugh hysterically when I'm t- telling him exactly who he is and it's not pretty. Like, yeah. I can cut right to the bone with that guy and he just fucking loves it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's how I connect with him on some level. I, I find relief when I can make him laugh and it makes me feel good to make him laugh. But generally, if he's laughing at me, I'm insulting him deeply mm-hmm. uh you know character things you know like sure okay why don't you just waste all the family's money like you did that last time why don't you get into a business where you'll bankrupt us you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff and he just laughs his ass off because it's true yeah and i don't think sometimes when he's getting himself into trouble or or or, or hurting me or my brother or anybody else emotionally that he really acknowledges it so i think that by me putting it in his face it's some sort of validation or it's it's bizarre yeah. But I mean, I say some pretty cruel things to him. But like, but but that's interesting because you, you know, when you and I have gotten in disagreements over the years, yeah. When I call you on your shit, it's when you res- you respond best to that, right? Because I that and I think I have that same feeling. I get that weird kind of feeling of like I got you, you yeah. know, like when when I'm called out, it's almost like somebody has pulled away the mark, the angry mark curtain, yeah, and there's this giggling child in there, yeah. And and I I'm like okay you're right so what happens now yeah do you like me but still you know, but you know what's sad about that is like it, I because I've talked to a million people about you in the last week yeah and one guy who used to work at um, short attention span theater mm-hmm. was that the show you hosted on sure. Comedy Central in yeah. the '90s yeah and he said you were such an asshole to to people who were low lo- in lower status. Is that true? That's what he said. And I asked him for specifics. I said, what? I, I said, people say that, you know, Mark Maron's famous for being an asshole or, you know, his persona yeah. on stage is, is it tougher? And so, but, but do you, have, you know, do you have real specifics? And he goes, well, he was just, he goes, he's the guy who, who didn't, you know, who didn't say hi to the interns in the hallway when they were the only people there. Hmm. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, it seems like you are tougher on people who are, who are in lower status or who are nicer and that you you actually respond well to people, you know, like Patrice or Attell who are who are tougher. Right. My recollection of that and 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 I think that I'm I, I'm certainly much different now and usually and this may be a cop out, I don't know. But my recollection of my experience particularly with that show was that I was in this position where I was doing this angry comedy and I thought I was like, you know, a voice of like rebellious truth. And then I get this opportunity to host this show, which is essentially a clip show. Right. And I was in one of those weird positions that we get in sometimes, which is that, you know, this is an opportunity to earn money in show business. It's completely contrary to who you are and what you're doing. Yeah. 
And when I first got there, it was like they didn't have a they didn't even have a writer to do bits and stuff. You filled you came in for Stewart, right? Well, no, it was a different show. They kind of resurrected it. It was no longer uh, a panel show, an interview show. You know that you know when Patty and John did it, it was sort of a news show. Pat, Patty who? Ross Burrow. Oh, she she hosted it. Yeah, and it had gone through several manifestations. Joe Bolster, Marcus Allen. Uh, you know, it, it had sort of been this weird daily thing that they'd done in one form or another for years. And by the time I got there, Robert Small was uh, directing it, and Kiki Steele was producing it with Robert, and it was at HBO Downtown, and they reshaped the whole thing. And it was this fake, it was this vault. The idea was, you're down in the basement at Comedy Central. So it was set up like there was an elevator there, Mm -hmm. a fake elevator. There were these film reels around, Mm -hmm. like a dusty basement. Yeah, yeah. I kind of remember this. Right. And it was me in the vault coming out there going like, you know, I'm Mark Maron. I'm down the vault. I would ride down the elevator. I'd do a shtick with the the elevator operator. Uh, the, The first one was Frank Santarelli and then Eric Palladino. And... For the first few months, I have to imagine, I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. I mean, if somebody doesn't get, you know, we got to write some original comedy here. Mm -hmm. You got to let me breathe a little bit. We've got to do something other than like, I I still remember. I have the first four episodes of that thing when we had this one writer and all he was doing was cut twos. So I literally remember, you know, setting up and all the all the material was promotional material recut into a show. Mm-hmm. It was shit that was, uh, you know, whatever movies or specials or whatever was coming in, we'd get a reel and they'd clip it into the show as if I was choosing these things. In right. The vault. right. Right. Like a TRL for comedy kind of thing. What's that? Total Request Live, which is the MTV show. I, uh, yeah. Carson I, Daly hosted. But right. It was a Carson Daly job in a way. Yeah. So he has me saying things like, all right, coming up next, a pithy python pear. Oh, wow. Like, so, so you had to read kind of like, you know, quote unquote, witty copy. Witty copy, alliterative copy. And that lasted about four episodes. And I got that guy fired and I was fuming. And I said, you know, I can't, you can't do this to me because, you know, even though no one knows me, I, right. I'm doing- I have integrity about what I am. Well, I, I don't want to be, yeah, right. I don't, and I don't want to be this. Thing. I don't want to be a puppet. And I, oh, that's and hard. It was horrendous. That's but awful. like, I threw such a shit fit, you know, that they brought in John Groff, who went on to be the head writer at Conan. And, and this was his first real writing job. And I finally felt comfortable. We were writing short sketches mm-hmm. and we did bits. And, you know, I, you know, and there were jokes that were being written that I could, you know, around the clips that, uh, you know, I could get behind. But I have to assume that what was going on there was I was so fucking miserable mm-hmm. and so panicky constantly about how I was being seen that I, I don't know how I could ever really be happy. So that doesn't mean that I should forego politeness. Right. But I think I was in a pretty fucking miserable place, and I should have been happy. I was making money, and I was learning how to be on television. I learned how to read prompter there. Yeah, you know, some people can do that, some people can't. Sure, I, I got a lot of things that I'm grateful for, but I was pretty fucking miserable. Did you get fired ultimately? No, the show went under. Uh, you know, they they stopped doing the show, and then uh, you know, I got a, a deal to do a pilot, uh, which uh, this is sort of at the core of my resentment of John Stewart, I think, as well. You know, I got a deal after that. You know, I was on there for a year. I believe I got, you know, because of my affiliation with Nancy Geller and Nina. Uh, Rosenstein. Yeah, at HBO Downtown. You know, I got the first half hour in 95. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, then they, that same run that had Janine Garofalo. Yeah, and, yeah, and Carlos Benzia. Oh, there it is. And Bob Judy Goldwayne. John yeah. Katz. Yep, I remember Gould. that series. And I got in that. And then, you know, we got this pilot deal because, you know, Comedy Central at that time was moving towards more towards like at that time there was this weird partnership between HBO and, and Viacom 
HBO was part of it through HBO Downtown. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you know, Viacom sort of started to push HBO Downtown out a little bit. So we had done this pilot for a new daily show. It was the Mark Maron Project. It was a talk show. Yeah. And they went with their produced daily show. They went with the daily show with Kilbourne. Kilbourne, yeah. And I just remember, you know, Madeline Smithberg came up to me and goes, we want you to be part of it. We want you to be like the angry, crazy guy, mm-hmm. you know, in the maybe in a bathroom stall, yeah. or, you know, with doing a bit. I was like, I was too proud. I was like, there's no fucking way. You yeah. Know? I mean, that's the thing that uh, I, I asked so a lot I, of it's people. Not, it's not an apology and I'm not, and I'm not, ta- I'm not, not taking responsibility, but most of the time I was just rude because yeah. I was, you're I in was, a bad headspace. I was you felt like you were being cornered. Yeah, and I just I was just rude. I, you know, I have to force myself a lot of times to say thank you. Like sometimes I'll send two emails. Like I, it's not in my habit to be you know that polite, and I take people for granted, and I, and I, I will cop to that. Yeah, I mean, the, but to get back to the comedy stuff, Eddie Brill asked something that that I, I've always uh, was curious about with you too. Eddie Brill was a, yeah. as a as a comedian and was a guest on the show as well. Um, he said, uh, you know, we all reinvent ourselves as comics over and over again. And as we get more experience, we become more of ourselves and less acting like a comedian on stage. And he was he was wondering, how do you feel? Do you, how do you feel um, differently now from a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago? I mean, and I'm going to add an addendum to that, which is when I first saw you, it was at Luna Lounge because my sister Gina was a big fan of the Luna Lounge yeah, culture. Yeah, she, she worked for Nina. I she remember your Nina, sister yeah. from HBO Downtown. Yep. Yeah, I remember her. So, uh, yeah. So my sister introduced me to, you know, that scene that you started with Janine Garofalo and Todd Berry. Um, you know, at the time, UCB was doing stuff yeah. on that show. It was called Eating It, yeah. Luna Lounge. And I remember seeing you, and I have to say, no, no one... I don't know, you know, your young experiences, it's hard to quantify things because you, you lose perspective. But for my money, seeing you kill in the Luna Lounge is the hardest I've ever seen anyone kill. I mean, it was, it was untethered. It was raw. It was simultaneously political and personal and observational, sometimes silly. It was very loose. I would describe it as, you know, sometimes you'd shout and sometimes you'd be soft. And it was, it was really kind of ran the gamut of what, is, what you are. Yeah. And, and then I remember, you know, cut to like five or six years later, I moved to New York. And, um, you know, it was probably around 2001. Yeah. And I would run into you sometimes at the Comedy Cellar. And I would see you in that setting. And it was like a different stage persona. Right. I mean, it was it was jerk off jokes. I mean, not not exclusively, but like you know, it was it was it was kind of your more typical right comedian road comedian kind of stuff. Right. And I found it really disappointing. Yeah. Because I was like, where's that other guy? Yeah. And I feel like in some ways, the podcast has resurrected kind of what you what you were, what your true voice was. Right. Well, I mean, I think that if you listen to the records, you know, most of those are pretty true to that. My, I think so too. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, really, to, to to take that example specifically, you know, what happened at Luna Lounge was that I was, you know, I'd already been doing comedy six years. So, and I've always been one of those guys that, you know, if people see me on television, they're like, "That's you're not getting 
the full no. thing. I remember seeing you on Conan in that period because you paneled yeah, a, a lot. lot. Yeah. I, I mean, what were you on, 40 times? Yeah, I was on a few times a year, three or four times a year. And yeah, no, it didn't It didn't have that thing. Right, and I don't, like, there was nothing I could do about that, man. I mean, I think that the HBO special in 95 is as close to it it's as It's great. I, well, that was because, you know, I was in Luna Mind, and I mm-hmm. said, look, man, you know, I didn't even prepare a set for yeah. my HBO special. This is who I am. This, but, but that's fucking crazy. Yeah. Who the fuck would do that? I mean, like, I was like, I'm like, well, I've been riffing a lot and I got a few ideas, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I'm kind of going to lay back and, you know, I got a couple things I know I want to do. And then the centerpiece of that thing, uh, the Jerry Garcia story, which, which is, I had no idea I was going to do it. And I may, I may have told it once before. So I'm doing a Luna set at the Fillmore for my HBO special. Anybody who was a, you know, a, a, a comedian with foresight or discipline, or even a guy that thought ahead about who was going to be watching that, what it meant to have an HBO half mm-hmm. hour, would have been making himself crazy. But I was sort of stoned, you know, the day before. And I'm like, look, just stay in the zone, man. Keep it, you know, so you want to get real up there. So all that time at Luna, I was going up there unprepared. And, and, and that's really a lot of how I work. But it's also how I write material. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know how you do it, but I imagine you do some version of that. A lot of typing. Well, you, but you're an organizer, and I envy that. Uh, like, you know, I listen to your stuff now, and, you know, you sort of, you, you kind of, um, uh, it, it, it's like an old style of long-form comedy that, you know, that you don't hear anymore. Because you know, you assume that people can't pay attention that long. You have a, a a complex story with a lot of different punchlines. With and and the and the tag is not like some turn of phrase on a joke. It's literally a surprise ending, and everything has a narrative. It takes a lot of balls to do that, and well, and yeah, and and your and your skill set is great, and and it's like you know, I I don't want to like you, but I mean, uh, but I do. Oh, but thanks. in like you know the last uh, I think it was Letterman, I was like, holy fuck, who does that? There's only a few people that do what you do. Uh, really, because it takes a sort of you know groundedness in your voice and 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 a certain amount of balls to get involved with a five minute bit that if it falls in the middle that you're you're in the middle of a bit. I mean, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Jake Johansson does it a bit. Oh yeah, yeah. Jake's brilliant. Right, this is a style of comedy that you don't see very often because it takes a lot of balls to do it and to pull it off. But like, I've never been that guy. I'm the guy that I'm gonna fucking go full in. And I'm going to get into something. And I don't know where it's going. And it's all based on my feelings. And it's all based on mm-hmm. the fucking moment of what's going to mm-hmm. happen in this moment. So I was doing a lot of that at Luna. But but the comedy seller, as an example, I mean, that place, they wouldn't even put me on until she saw my HBO special. All anybody wanted to do was perform at that club. And I'll tell you, honestly, it's one of the hardest fucking clubs in the world to work. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. You know, everything about it, you know, it's got low ceilings, it's intimate, it should yeah. be great. But well, I'm we, telling you, if you exhibit any fear in that room, you're fucking yeah. finished. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's it, And also, you're following everyone's best 10 minutes. You're following the, the 10 best comedians doing... Their ten best minutes. So honestly, nobody nobody works out in that room. Yeah, but but Except also other than a tell and maybe a few other guys. Right. I never got to that level of comfort in that room, and I'm still not there. Mm-hmm. I, that room still scares me. This still scares me too. So I mean, what you were seeing in that example is like I was a guy that there was really no way for me to sell what I was doing at Luna. 
There was, you know, I knew it was what I was good at. And even when I did it, I always felt like I had raped myself, mm-hmm. you know, when I performed at Luna. And it was just because I was surrounded by like-minded people to a degree that they were, they were kindred spirits. Most of them were creative people. They were Lower East, Lower East Side people. Mm-hmm. There were people that were kind of fascinated by this new thing. And I was, you know, going up there on my way there, you know, not unlike I do, you know, when I approach the mic that you're at. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, what the fuck have I got? What have I got? What have I got? Yeah. You know, and I'm like, all right, well, I went to the store and that fucking happened and I'm like I don't know what's going to happen here and that's how I generate jokes it's always been that way and Mm -hmm. now I can do it you know when I go out on the road you know I do that and I've always done that but again it's not consistent uh, and and it it is my process so maybe what you saw at the cellar not unlike Conan or anything else is is me trying to take what I do and find where the joke is I've got to sort of sort it out yeah Yeah. And, and and so I don't know that I was ever different because it seems that I show up when I do shows on the road. I usually show up for myself on my CDs. I show up for myself. But there are certain contexts, uh, you know, a five-minute spot on TV. But recently I've been better at it uh, in terms of like because, you know, I think to address Eddie's question, I was very defensive. It was not a creative choice. My disposition early on, uh, when I was very young, I was like, you know, I, you know, I want to be like Woody Allen. You know, I'm neurotic. I'm a Jew. Mm-hmm. You know that. And then at some point in, in college, before I really started doing comedy, I, I got brokenhearted. I got angry, and I committed to this sort of like, I'm, I'm going to be a drunk, and I'm going to be an ass, and yeah. I'm going to fucking, you know, and, and my guys are the angry guys. So that was my disposition. But inside of it was always, a, you know, a very sort of panicky, hypersensitive, you know, you know, neurotic, poetic, pretty yeah. soft dude. So those weren't really choices about creativity. I think I'm closer to myself than now than I've ever been. Yeah. And I think that final engagement really is the end, if anything, the death of that anger. Mm-hmm. That was just un, you know, just really untethered anger for no real reason. Uh it, I I don't have that anymore. I think one of the one of the problems in terms of your commercial career is that and and you're very successful now, you know, now that you're I don't know what you how this has occurred. I mean, I guess it's just the democratization of audio on the internet has yeah. made you be able to be yourself for two hundred hours, and and people have come to it, which is amazing. Yeah. But I think one of the problems with the help of my friends, with one of the problems uh, along the way, was probably that people wanted to go, oh, Mar- it's Mark Maron, the angry comedian. Oh yeah. Or Mark Maron, the political comedian, but actually. You're not either of those, that's right. and I and I think that's the, that seems like that's the problem. I think that's true. Is that is that you're not Lewis Black? No, and you know I there, you're I don't know what you I don't you don't know there's no way to describe you other than you're Mark Maron, right? And and that's a hard thing to sell if you don't know who Mark Maron is. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I always like I, it. Always drove me nuts that you know when when people be like you know uh, like just recently you know mike august who's working with corolla yeah i know mike right he produces corolla yeah he calls me up and he's like look what do you think about a live thing where it's you and adam and andrew breitbart and i'm like i would rather shoot myself in the fucking mouth and you know i said i'm not not in that venue anymore and he's like no it's gonna be fun i'm like i don't know for who it wouldn't be fun for me yeah it's not my wheelhouse anymore 
And and that whole thing, I was always a cultural commentator and I was always a guy in search of himself and, and highly analytical of himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, early on when I watch like my 1989 evening at the improv, you know, I can still see myself there. I don't watch old tapes of me and go, who the fuck was that guy? Mm -hmm. I can definitely see a guy trying to find his voice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and when I watch that HBO special, which a lot of people love, I see a guy that like, you know, maybe should have prepared a little better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I had a big opportunity there. I could have done some stronger jokes. There was a couple there. And I also am very hard on myself in that, like, I don't necessarily think that I I am as structurally as, as, as good as I could be. And and that maybe if I put more more work into like like putting the, together bits like you do and really finding you know these beats within things, I find them you know as the bit evolves. Mm-hmm. But I certainly don't write them down, so it could take me a year or two to finish a joke. Well, that that was the thing that you said to me once because you and I have known each other for about ten years. Almost everything you've ever said to me I've, has stuck with me, for better or for worse. For better or for worse, because some of some of the stuff I think is true and some of it is not, but it's all provocative and bold certainly is uh <laughs> you uh you said that real comics don't write things down come on you did you said that and i and i really took that to heart because like, oh i guess i'm not a real comic i i write everything down but but you really don't i mean it's a little bit it's true i don't it's a I little don't. it's a little bit jay-z-esque it's a little stupid no but like you ever see that jay-z documentary no. where it, I think it's called Fade to Black. Yeah, where he's going in the studio and it's it's just all in there. Mm-hmm. He just builds it up and then they roll tape. Yeah, and he just he just fucking wraps an album. Well, th- it's it's all well and good until you get a brain injury or you get old and then you have to go fishing for bits that you don't do anymore in your head and they're gone because your brain is can only you know function to a certain degree. Yeah, but I but because of that, you know, the one thing that you can say that I can't is that if someone said that's a great bit you could say you know yeah I wrote that down and and to my mystical self I don't know where the fuck my jokes come from I listen to jokes on those first two records yeah and I like I was thinking about today that cell phone joke bit I used to do mm-hmm. about I don't think Beethoven had any idea that one day <laughs> his fifth symphony would emit from some idiot's pocket and yeah. the response would be oh fuck it's my mom oh, that's funny yeah but I don't know where it came from you know, like, you know, it, I look at You how don't remember I, the incarnation of it. Well, I mean, I know that the idea makes sense, but like, if you look at my notebooks, they're probably just going to say cell phone. Yeah. Beethoven. I, re- I remember looking at your website like many years ago. Oh, yeah, with the napkins? And you had your napkins where you had, you, you had written like, you know, this is the napkin that I wrote the cell phone joke on or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought that that was the most, one of the most self-serving things I've ever seen on a website, which is a self-serving platform right. to begin with. Well, I just like the way they looked because they somehow looked like weird artifacts to me. This is what Sarah Silverman asks. First of all, she says, congratulations, Mark. Um, and then she also says, you are love, love, loved, love Sarah. Oh. She's really affectionate towards you. I know. All, I these, know. all these people are, by the way. All the people who wrote um, uh, these questions, yeah. and uh, she says, "With all the success, with all the success you're having, will your brilliant and endearing insecurities and vulnerabilities swell or subside? What do you think will happen, and what do you hope will happen?" I'm just trying to. I, I, my concern is that I will get inflated. What do you mean by that? That I'll get cocky, and I'll do something stupid. Or you know I'll uh, you know I'll get filled with myself. I think the fear of of that is more you know I I do have a fear of the other shoe dropping, but I seem to have some effective machinery in place now to to 
to fight the panic because I was fueled by panic mm-hmm. and anxiety. That was really what drove me. Fear and anxiety. Yeah. It's just that that was that was. What, yeah, I can relate to that. That was what what was I, I was made of that. But I've had some success with with not projecting too far into the future and and foreseeing doom or, or with this with, with this project. No, just in my life. Okay, like in my being. That like I'm not sitting here, you know. I had to fight it. I had a real fight with it. Like my fear, I, I don't think I'm going to lose my insecurity. I I think that I might feel a little bit more grounded than I have, which is probably good. But my fear is that like not that it'll go to my head so much, but that I'll get too comfortable and and I'll start taking things for granted. Right, and the work will get worse. Yeah, I have that will fear. Get less funny. Yeah. It, well, no, I don't. I like I, I I don't know. Like I don't know where my comedy comes from, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, and from talking every two days on this mic, you know, things keep generating. Mm-hmm. And, and I sort of surprise myself every week. You know, not like, oh, oh look at what I did. But like, oh, that, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I should make note of that, um, you know, material wise. But but I, who the hell knows what's going to happen? But no, I don't. I, I, I My fear is not that I'm not going to be funny. My fear is that that maybe I might need my I might not need to be. <laughs> I emailed uh carlos mencia i didn't email him i don't know him he seems he's more than willing to talk to me well i emailed his manager and got kind of a uh, just kind of a negative response back just kind of like well i don't know i don't know why you're asking me this since since he came on the show and then mark had two guys come on and and shit on him after that or, or whatever it is i i yeah you know and uh i was curious do you feel i think carlos since being on this show has yeah. taken a little bit of a hit career-wise, and I'm curious, do you feel any guilt over that? No, I don't think that whatever he's experienced career-wise has anything to do with me. I mean, the the feedback I got from that was, you know, for whatever it's worth, people saw Carlos as a human. He, you know, I gave him a, a free mic Oh yeah, yeah to I've sort of explain it. himself. Like he, the first episode, he, you know, he basically was trying to reinvent himself in front of me. He he had an agenda here. Yeah, it was great. And then the second episode was this, you know, this guy barely keeping it together. So I think people became more empathetic about him. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I was responsible for any. Um, but the Willie Barcena stuff was so damning. Was it? I think so. I mean, because I I didn't know who Willie they were both pretty diplomatic. I no, thought. no, I agree. But I think that Willie's ex. I didn't know who Willie was, even though he's a very well known comic. And I just I was listening to him, just going, "Oh, this guy seems really nice and level headed and funny, and and he's really being honest. He's opening up about yeah. this guy who stole from him, and that was that was very compelling. I thought." Well, I think, you know, like, I don't think I sandbagged him at all. And I thought that, you, you, you know, Willie and Steve were guys that knew him and and liked him. Steve was, you know, as, you know, I don't know much about Steve either, but I mean, he worked with him, but he was fairly, uh, you know, diplomatic, but in saying that he, he loved the guy. Mm-hmm. And Willie was like, look, you know, we hung out when we were younger and, you know, I noticed he didn't write things down. And now I do, you know, when he comes in the room, I don't uh, do jokes in front of him. Yeah. I mean, that, you know. But I, I don't know that uh, that that I had anything to do, and I bet you if we called Carlos directly, he would talk. I mean, talk to the New York Times. I don't know why. I mean, I didn't. You know, I wasn't completely comfortable with that situation. I mean, towards the end of that interview, I was trying to end it yeah. <laughs> because I, I was like, all right, all right, all right, all right. You know. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the Gallagher one was tough 
for me, the Gallagher episode, because I was a little bit on Gallagher's side. Yeah. I was I was just listening going, well, you know, okay. He's not that he's not that funny. Yeah. He's a little over the hill. Just let the fucking guy just go on the road and be offensive and homophobic. Who cares? I didn't even really care about that. But you did take him you know, you said, "Well, what does this say to your audience? What does this mean when you say, when you say this joke? What does that mean?" Yeah, because we, bottom line, he was a fucking guy that was a clown. He's a fucking clown, and I never had any respect for him when I was a kid. I didn't have any respect for him then. I wouldn't have interviewed him hadn't I gotten the opportunity. Now, you know, my my position on this show is that I wanted to. I I said, "Well, I'm going to do this. Can I find some love for this guy?" I didn't hate the guy. I just, you know, he wasn't. He, he was never my style. My little brother loved him. What am I going to do? Kids loved him. What are you going to do? Fine. Mm-hmm. All right. But he was still, a, a, you know, he's a prop act and he's a hack. But he did invent something. Is he? A, yeah. I mean, the thing that 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 struck me from that interview, and I never would have even thought about it other than that, is is he was you called him out on telling street jokes on stage, which is the hackiest thing you can do. Yeah. But I started thinking about, you know, is there something wrong with street jokes? No, because I, 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 you know, you, my, you, knew, you nor I would ever tell a street joke on stage. It's not what we're into. But I if have, people are into. I have. Oh, you have? And when I was starting out, sure. Because the Gallagher thing made me think of the first time I was opening for, I, I first time I was opening for someone who did a street joke. And it was at like a terrible college gig, and I was opening up for this guy who I really respected, or I still do. I'm not going to say who it is because I don't want to out him that he did a street joke in a, in a show. And and he couldn't end. This is why people do street jokes. Yeah. Because he couldn't get an, a big enough laugh to close the show. Right. And so, he, and finally, I'm watching him just kind of reel. And then finally he goes, all right, well, f- you know, take this home or whatever. The it's thing a confidence thing though, really. And, and And he did a street joke and I was like, man. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know as a comedian you could say things that other people say, or that is that is that is. Was, I think they used to phrase it like as the take-home joke. Yeah, you know, like. But in the '80s, there was a lot of things going on in that last few minutes. I mean, there was a dude named Dan Scannell who used to do backflips. <laughs> there was, <laughs> there were guys. I mean, there were that things. Just sounds like one of those things that you'd make up about the '80s. No, no, comedy. he did it. I remember he would do it, like a standing backflip. Yeah, there were musical numbers. Yeah, there were, uh, you know, there. Were, you always felt the closer, you know? <laughs> and you know, and I don't even have a closer anymore. I, yeah. I, I just, I don't mind if I don't close strong, which is one of. The, but getting back to Gallagher, one of the mistakes I made on that interview was that I didn't really cite. The examples. That's now. Right, yeah. What he was doing was he was putting canned fruit on a on a on a thing and saying let's let's do this to the fruits and smashing it with his hammer. Oh, you know, and he was doing bad. that with like you know uh, Asian vegetables. Let's get, you know the Chinese, you know, yeah. the, and and then he was doing these horrendous jokes. I don't have any problem with street jokes, but my problem with him was. Uh, you know, I was more than willing to integrate him into the history of comedy in, in through me, yeah. th- you know, in my understanding of it. I knew he started the comedy store and in right away, even with that stuff, he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, why don't I have a talk show? Oh my God. I know. So, so, that was the thing that I couldn't get over. I was talking to Mulaney about this recently. We were walking around in New York, just obsessing over that Gallagher interview. The fact that he would go, I went on the road, but I could have had a talk show. I could have had a sitcom. And it was like, well, what would that have even been? 
Yeah, but then he justifies it like he was doing the real work. That was the most offensive thing. I was out there selling tickets. Yeah. Okay, so you decided to be a a one-man circus. Yeah. Because that's how you saw show business. And that is definitely part of show business. But then to resent somebody for, for, for sacrificing that in order to try to get a job on television, which is this other area of show business, is crazy. And then to think that you were entitled to that, whatever the case was, you know, by the time he left, I was I was surprised that he left. I was willing to get past the politically incorrect stuff because it wasn't about political incorrectness. Mm-hmm. I just wanted him to answer to it. And the way he answered to it was, it's not even my jokes. And yeah. it turns out in that interview, I thought you saw exactly who he was. He was homophobic. He is delusional. Uh, he's angry. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he's also you know got an, an incredibly distorted vision of what comedy is. And once he started dismissing every comedy, every comic that I respected and, and talked to me like that, to talk down to me like that, I can only take so much of that. Yeah. And, and I, was, I thought I was pretty fucking nice about it. Yeah. This is a, but a, I don't care what anyone says. Th- this is a question that, this is related. Mulaney and I were talking about, John Mulaney and I were talking about this today, and I guess this would be his question for you, which is, uh, is our collective question, which is, what is edgy these days in comedy? Being completely honest about yourself. Yeah. And do you do that? Yeah, I've always done it, but I never thought it was edgy. <laughs> yeah, I I I have a big pet peeve with the word edgy because yeah, I got in, thrown in that out a lot. I I they people used to use that a lot. I just don't think there's any you know, you can talk politics. You can say like, you know, I want the Pope to eat my balls. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus was in my ass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you can run around and say nigger if you want to as a white person to, you know, and, and couch it in something that enables you to say it so you can feel the juice of saying it. Mm-hmm. You can do all that shit. But, you know, that that's not edgy. Right. I mean, the, what is the edge? What I have found just by virtue of doing this show and, and by virtue of what I do and, or what somebody like Louie does, and I think you do it as well on, on a good day, if you're willing to take the emotion emotional risks you know which you do you know to talk about some freakish disease that you have that compromised your life and put you through something to me that's edgy Mm. you know because like and it's not even something i aspire to but i realize that the power of somebody saying i need help is a lot more threatening yeah to somebody than hearing uh than hearing like you know jesus lives in my ass yeah because like first of all jesus doesn't live in your ass and i believe in jesus so that's offensive to me all right so one guy's like that's it with this guy yeah but the to 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 express your heart and to stay in it and make it funny that's more of a risk for you and for the audience to risk personal rejection i think so from an audience yeah, yeah, but also to to reveal to the audience because the when we live in a day and age when when somebody needs help, most people are like, yeah, you know, I, I you know I got no time, you know I mean I you know I have healthy boundaries and I I wish I could be there for you. If there's something I can you know I I can give you some money for coffee or I can give you a phone number of a guy, mm-hmm. but most people have foregone just out by virtue of their own you, you know self involvement the the you know empathy. Mm-hmm. And and the ability to actually you know hear someone's problems without feeling you know drained or feeling like mm-hmm. you know what is expected of me, like and that's a lot of what I learned on this podcast just by listening to people. It was very difficult. I like to listen to people, despite what anyone may think of me. Mm-hmm. I love to be. I love hearing stories. I love to laugh. I like being emotionally engaged. But it took me a long time to be an active listener and realize like you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say anything here, and this doesn't implicate you at all. This is this person's experience. You know, be empathetic and 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 hold your ground as a person who's empathetic. Mm-hmm. 
And and I think that's you know somewhat challenging for a comedy audience, not a theater audience. I mean, mm-hmm. they expect that in a mm-hmm. theater. Yeah. But I, I think that you know in comedy to ride that line. Yeah. I mean, what's really edgy is is when people are saying like, "Is this guy okay?" Yeah. No, you're. I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, it's a little crazy. Well, I, you know, I know your work really well, and I would describe it as you know, uh, autobiographical and honest. And uh, but what is it? I, I always think about this with my my own work. What is it that you're not saying? Because it's like I can listen to you go, well, I have problems with relationships and I because I'm controlling and I'm this and I'm this. And I can hear the broad strokes of what you're describing as your as your downfalls. But it's like, why, with all due respect, are you twice divorced and have all kinds of rocky shit with the girl that you're with right now and weren't with last week? I mean, what are you doing in these relationships specifically? And if that's too personal, then don't answer it. No, I, I, it's not too personal in the sense that I think it's like if I can track this shit down, even in my relationships with audiences, like one of the things that I'm not doing on stage is, and one of the things that concerns me about me is that I have to, you know, acknowledge when I'm getting a laugh because people are uncomfortable and when I'm getting a laugh because I've, I've said something funny. Mm-hmm. And like even on the last album, that uh, that I'm calling this has to be funny. Mm-hmm. There's a moment on it where you know I talk ab- about my mother, you know, saying something that was you know, pretty heartbreaking. And before I said the joke, I said this has to be funny. They, I mean, it has to be, you know, because. <laughs> it, 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 but I mean, I uh, love that turn of phrase. But right, but there, another comic would have just made it funny. I mean, you know, like a lot of times I just tell the truth about the situation and people are like, oh my God. So is there craft to that? Is there anything other than just balls? I mean, obviously I can say it on stage and not be afraid to say it on stage, but is that craft? But that's one element. Now, the thing that you're asking me about relationships is that I believe that, you know, we're wired a certain way and that our parents, one way or the other, you know, puts in that board. You know, they they install the you know the 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 main you know the motherboard whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you know as I go on, like one of the revelations I had about this failing thing, to to like I have a tremendous fear of embarrassment, which is weird and and and, and that's you know Harry Shearer and I've quoted this before said you know comedians, um, do what they do to try to control why people laugh at them. That's right. I, I completely agree with and, that. And, yeah. You're controlling the narrative because you're going to get laughed at regardless, but you're trying to control when and when and how. Right. But I think what happened with me was that because my parents were so self-involved that, that I would seek negative attention, that I knew I could get their attention if I fucked up. Mm-hmm. I knew I could get to get their attention if I disappointed them. Mm-hmm. I knew that they were not really prone to saying, I'm proud of you. We love you. You know, if you fail, it's okay. Try again. I never got that kind of reinforcement. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for my mother and father now to say they're proud of me. My mother had to teach herself how to do that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the attention that I sought as as a, a child and through my life, you know, subconsciously was negative attention because I knew if I fucked up, I would be the center of attention. Now, when I was in that picture that's sitting on the desk there, that happy baby, my grandma used to call me the happy baby. I was the first grandchild of all four grandparents. I was the first child of my parents. My, my grandmother's like, you're always the happiest baby. You're always the happiest baby. You know, I was wow. like, the, I was the fucking- You really are. I'm looking at it for people listening to this and not watching a video that doesn't exist. Uh, a picture of Mark 
has an adorable baby in I think in like a little blow up pool, a little blow up pool, and you're 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 smiling ear to ear. Yeah, yeah. What happened to that kid? So, you know, to address what you're saying, I, 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 you know, I walked through life most of my life looking for parent replacements you know most of my my idols and most of the the men i gravitated towards you know as mentors or teachers were usually very aggravated very raging and you know very intense and and i was i really felt that i was always like most of my life i was it was spent like a kid lost at a mall you know waiting for someone to parent me so i had these very weird expectations and a lot of what i did on stage early on was defying an audience to like me Mm -hmm. that i would push them to the edge and 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 literally be like now do you like me? You know, mm-hmm. like I what because that's the way I was brought up that there was negative reinforcement, yeah. and I believe that you know I expected an audience to like me no matter how much I fucked up because that's what I was wired to do to get emotional support. Mm-hmm. And with with my relationships, you look, my first wife I married because I sh- I thought I should. You know, I was with her a long time, and and you know I was I was barely in control of a uh, you know I wasn't in control of a drug problem really, and. And and she was very sort of there for me and very you know nice and 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 supportive and you know I went with her a long time and I and I I, I didn't feel like that I was in love with her necessarily but I loved her and it felt comfortable enough and I thought this is why this is when you get married you know I guess this is what it is yeah you know and and then that blew up and I met the second wife who got me you know sober and she was a comic and she was fucking stunning and she was younger than me and I was just completely in awe of her and put her up on a pedestal but she did get me sober but. Because I, yeah, you know, I, I didn't have any time of my own in between those wives. I've always been very raging and very paranoid. Like I think I feel, always feel like I'm being emotionally manipulated, so I react to those feelings, even if they're not true. So, do you think that the, the same thing broke up each of your marriages? It sounds like two different things. It sounds like the first one was you felt an obligation to be in it, and that's why you stayed. And the second one was that you 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 held her up on a pedestal and it created an uneven relationship well I not only did I held her up on a pedestal but I was completely paranoid that she was going to leave I always thought she was manipulating me I thought she was fucking with me when she said things yeah. and you know I couldn't handle if she didn't you know you know say you know that exactly what I wanted to hear and I was constantly defensive and uh, and paranoid and 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 I could not figure out a way to emotionally connect with her like I didn't trust uh, my feelings. I I, w- I had a hard time being touched. I had a hard time being, you know, like held in any way because some part of me just didn't, you know, I wasn't wired that way. I didn't get that. You know, I, I you know, I, I was incapable of, of being nurturing to her. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't be selfless enough to, 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 to you know, to, to, to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because of sobriety and because of hitting the wall with these things, I, I've certainly been humbled. And, you know, even with this this girlfriend that I have now, we went through a horrible thing where it was that same shit. I was yelling and screaming and she was yelling and screaming and I thought she was fucking with me and I thought that I was doomed and that she was going to ruin my life. And there was all this fighting. And I, and I literally got physically sick and exhausted doing the same thing I did at the beginning of my second marriage. So do you think that you thrived on the, the, the drama and the excitement and the and the... The, the stress of the whole thing. I, I, you know, thriving is something that's an indulgence that you could talk about in retrospect. You know, am I addicted to drama? Is that, I didn't know what else to do. That wasn't happening because, you know, I made a decision to do it. I mean, I didn't feel emotionally connected to somebody unless they were crying and I was apologizing. It's a fucking sickness. Mm-hmm. So. Would you still have that? Well, no, what happened with, like, I realized with this woman who, like, for some reason got through after three and a half years of like, complete fucking, you know, 
you know, almost like detached sexual escapades out of, you know, spite and sadness. You know, this this girl gets through and I didn't know what to do with it. She got into my heart and I had real feelings for her. So I immediately started saying, well, it's got to be fucked up because I'm fucked up. And this is, and then sure enough, it started to be just as fucked up as the last one. And, you know, I, I, we broke up dramatically. I, I, put, I, I threw her out of my life. I cut her off completely. And I felt horrible because I still had these feelings for her. And, you know, I went to some Al-Anon meetings. I went to sex and love addicts meetings. You know, I called people who, who knew how to support the kind of situation I was in because I didn't feel like I was obsessed, but I really felt like I loved her. And when you're a person that goes through what I've gone through with the sobriety and everything else, you sort of try to pathologize everything. You don't trust anything. You're like, well, this is just love addiction. This is, you know, that's what this is. This is codependency. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, I, you know, okay, fine, I'll go to the meetings. But then, like, it, just, it still persisted, my feelings. So we got back together, and I made a conscious choice to let myself love her. Wow. And and it, and it, and it makes me sad, and it makes me you know I right now I feel choked up because like I'm capable of it. I'm a pretty sensitive guy. I was just so afraid of it that I fought it, and I fought it in the form of fighting people who love me. And I, I'm 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 just letting it happen. And you know, okay, she's she's nuts in a certain way, but who the fuck am I to judge? I spent three months away from her, thinking like I'm the moral high ground. I'm gonna be the guy that draws a line on what unhealthy is. No, no, that that girl's crazy. Who the hell am I? Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going to work through this shit, what I'm going to I'm going to find a well-adjusted person. How long do you think a well-adjusted person would take my shit? You, you, you know what I mean? How long? You, you, how long? So, so I just decided. Well, this is what my heart's doing. Why don't you just honor it, dude, and shut the fuck up and 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 fucking take the hit if it's going to be a hit. I've taken bigger hits, and and see if you can do it. See if you can. You know, when something upsets you, or you think you're being manipulated, or you think that you're being fucked with. And then I also realized, yeah, after two marriages, I had no fucking idea what how did you know that women were this way or that way that there were certain things that you could just let go mm-hmm. yeah yeah i'm discovering that that like you know dude just it's just yeah, you don't have to dwell on every little incongruity you right. can just and, go oh, okay so that's what that is and also there there might be some sort of dynamic between male female relationships and not to be yeah. hackneyed that's about not it perfect that's not perfect but yeah. also it's sort of like you're not going to get to the bottom of it yeah Without being, you know, like a hack comedian, I would assume that, you know, when you have a relationship, it's interesting how some of those hackneyed premises are actually true. Absolutely. <laughs> that's why that's why the people paid for the babysitter on Friday night to come see you. They want you to say those things and you make know. them feel it's okay that but their, also, their relationship is so fucked up. Right. But also I find that my feelings and my anger and my fucking, you know, insecurities and all that stuff, those are true too. But yeah. you don't hear a lot of that. What do you mean you don't hear a lot of that? I, you know, I get emails from people that say, like, you know, I'm so glad you're speaking your mind because I thought I was fucking alone. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. No, I think that's actually the most satisfying thing about doing the comedy, the kind of comedy that you and I both do, which is when people go, oh, I, I had, you know, I feel this and no, and, and I didn't know anybody else. I, I believe like you, And believe me, the, the best thing you can do as a comic is make someone feel less, less alone. Absolutely. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's one thing to blow minds. And you know, the two things that I think are essential with good comedy is you, you actually make somebody see something in a different way mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. or that you make feel, people feel less alone. There's another question from... Uh... Doug Stanhope, if you could go back to one vice for a long weekend, which would it be? And uh, and which previous WTF guest would you do it with? 
Doug Stanhope, by the way, probably my favorite comic right now. I saw him at Caroline's last month. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He he's was got just, like he a was... new hour every 15 minutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's, yeah, like, yeah. he's so prolific, it's ridiculous. He was just here. I did a second interview with him. Um, well, if I really, you mean, if I was going to do it with somebody else, you, you're saying if I was going to sit down. Yeah, yeah, if you're going to, if you're going to go back to Coke or drinking or. or like or if I was going to do it my own, well, that, you know, that wasn't that long ago. Uh, Which loops in, by the way, to Jonathan Ames had a similar question. Oh, my God. Jonathan Ames's question is, what weird behavior has a comedian brought up that you've subsequently tried? That's kind of a similar question. Okay, I'll try to think about that. Well, if I was going to do drugs alone, I think that I miss pot more than anything else. If I was going to sit and, and hammer one out and, and, and get to the bottom of things with, uh, with uh, you know, a bottle of Jack Daniels and some blow, huh. Who the fuck would I do that with? Give me some options. You God got, damn uh, it. Maria Bamford. Oh, no, no, David no, no. David Cross. No, I've done that with him. Sarah Silverman, Todd no, Berry. No, no. And I can't see myself. Michael Showalter. Doing, oh, my God. Doing blow with Michael Showalter would be like a nightmare. That'd be like You a, guys would end up in a nine-hour <laughs> semiotics conversation. <laughs> it would be some sort of you know existential play. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, like, it seems yeah. like you would want to spend a lot of time with Maria Bamford. That interview, yeah, but you I don't want to do her. drugs with her. I saw her this morning at the coffee shop. I, you know, I just want to. She be... lived near here too. Yeah, that's uh, nice. I, I she just want her, one of her questions. I just was, like sitting with her. One of her questions was, "Can I have a Cat Ranch T-shirt, medium ladies' baby tee?" <laughs> that was her question. <laughs> ladies' baby tee. I don't. Know. <laughs> Let's see. I, you know, I don't like. I don't think I could. You know, me and Stanhope would be okay for a while, but I think he sort of does his own thing when he's fucked up. Um... Louis, Louis would be. No, I don't. I want. I don't want to sit down and do blow with Louis. I don't want to sit down and do blow with a towel because he would leave. Louis's question, <laughs> by the way, I call, that's true. Louis's question, by the way, I called him today, and I said, "Do you have any questions for Mark?" He goes, "I don't have anything." Tell him I said hi. I see. Now I don't know if he's mad at me again. No, no, he seemed fine. It was. He seemed well wishing. He's just a busy person. I understand that. Glenn Wool would be fun to party with. Brendan Walsh would be fun to have a few beers with. Um... Jim Jeffries might be fun to drink with. They seem they all seem like professional drinkers yeah. and partiers. That would be fun. Uh I don't think I want to do blow with you. <laughs> Why? I just think we'd get all wrapped up in the wrong conversation. And oddly, the thought of doing blow just paralyzes me. I can't even imagine it. This this interview is like us doing blow, by the way. Could you imagine doing blow with Ira Glass? Oh my God. My my just something just happened inside of me even thinking about that. I'd like to get high with Doug Benson again. That'd be fun, you know. So you know, there's a few there. Not this; they're not surprises. Yeah, you know. But I don't ever see myself doing blow. If I ever miss anything, it's pot. Um, Ira Glass didn't have a question. He just deferred to Anahid, his wife. Oh God, yeah. Um, who had a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And one of hers that was my favorite is, um, uh, you know, as people might know from listening to the podcast, you you save these feral cats and keep them here at the ranch. Yeah. And feral cats are cats who are in the wild who yeah. who you save, essentially. And, I have a few, yeah. And uh, she said, do you see yourself as one of these feral cats? Do you relate to the cats? I think emotionally, yeah, I do. Because, yeah, on some level. 
like I like them because they're so weird and twitchy and quirky and they're never quite comfortable. Yeah. They're not like domesticated cats. Mm -hmm. All of them are like a little uncomfortable. Yeah. But they've gotten to know me. And when you meet when you meet a feral cat, usually their their parents are around. <laughs> they're just not being properly parented in the human form, <laughs> you know. And but I, I like them because they're they're very unique. They have a lot of personality. They don't get fat. You know, because they're wired to sort of be, you know, yeah. always on their fucking guard. But yeah, I, I can see that. And I don't do a lot of it. I did it once in a very, you know, in a one foul swoop. I, I saved, you know, five or six cats. And I have two of those cats from the original dumpster cats. And then this one that I uh, that I adopted, they were all a few months old. So they weren't like living in the wild very long, but they're wired wild. Uh, that one I got at a shelter because it seemed to have personality. So that's how fucking dumb I am. And that's sort of like emotionally too. I'm like, let's get the one that seems crazy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so yeah. I one of that. one of Anahid's other questions was, do you think that Coke uh, changed your brain in some way? For a while. It took me a long time to shake the voices. I really coke myself in a psychotic state uh, through sleeplessness and everything else, but it went away. I, I, I think coke actually had this weird Ritalin effect on me. I felt, you know, really kind of, you know, kind of like intensely, aggressively calm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it fucked me up for a while, but it, that went away after about a year and a half. I mean, I'm coming up on 12 years here. So, uh, you know, most of that shit is, I don't think it altered me permanently, no. Yeah. Um, she's uh, Anahid's other question was I'm outside of oh you have this whole I'm outside of public radio they don't want me vibe and how do you feel now that, that you're broadcast they're broadcasting your radio show I feel a, a real a, a, a weird combination of uh, being honored mixed with fuck you mm -hmm. <laughs> sure yeah, so. so they're airing like 10 episodes of it on I guess. Yeah, but they're especially edited for them. I, it's very honored. I feel very honored. Yeah. And and I and I'm very happy that that the conversations are you know engaging enough to to sort of maybe be appealing to that audience. But there is sort of a, in a general sense just because this thing has succeeded, I had no expectations out of what the, what I'm doing here that there is something validating about it in a way that I don't think I could have gotten any other way. Cuz yeah. you know, I've never really been a self-starter. You know, this thing was born out of desperation and mm -hmm. fear, and and I love doing this. I love talking on on these kind of mics, mm -hmm. and I, something happened in here. I can't explain it. I, I don't know why it happens or why it happened, but it, but I do know that it, it was really the 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 it was it was all me and 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 my original producer Brendan. You know, and and because of his support. And his belief in me and also his incredible skill set and just, you know, this symbiotic thing that we had, you know, we, this thing happened, but it was just ours, you know, and, and no one else could touch it. And all of a sudden it's popular. There, there's a pride in that that you can't imagine. There's a pride in it that's bigger than, you know, getting a joke over or doing a good show. Mm -hmm. because this is a thing that we're like, this is our job, you know, we're doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have, you know, this is, you know, we have a work ethic around this and we have a, a consistency to it and, and a quality to it and we do it twice a week and no one is telling us to do that but us. Mm -hmm. That's fucking, you know, great. And now there's an audience and you're like, we got it, you know, the audience is waiting, you know. Here's what Jim Gaffigan says. My dearest Mark, congrats on being the Casey Kasem of podcasts. 
after interviewing so many comedians, is there one single attribute they all share, or are we all crazy? Are stand-ups more crazies than sketch people? It, it is an interesting question for you because you do seem to defend a lot of the sketch people as being a lot more grounded and centered. I I I, I contend that to be true. Still, yeah. Um, you said that to Amy Poehler. Well, look, they, the very nature of what they do is work with other people, so yeah. they got to be able to do that. Yeah, I don't know a lot of comics that innately are able to do that. Yeah. It's not their nature. Yeah, you got to work at it. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, when you're doing improv and sketch, you're you your group mind. You know, you're able to do that. You you may drink a lot or whatever, but also you know they're not required to drag their fucking you know sad bag of shit up on stage either. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're doing characters, you're doing improvs, you're acting in the moment where, mm-hmm. you know, basically, you know, a comic, you know, uh, at some point is like, uh, all right, here's my bag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's start yeah. going through it. Yeah. But uh, w- I think I always resent comedians who don't bring the bag. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that you should be able to, you know, sometimes the bag is, is hidden just stage right, maybe off stage a little bit. <laughs> but, but as long as the bag is somewhere in, in, that where I can see it, I'm okay with them. Yeah. You know, most people don't like, you know, you know, take the bag and put it in front of them, you know, in between them and the mic and start holding shit up. Yeah. But a lot of them do. But if I can at least, you know, know that you know, the bag is close by, I'm okay. But the ones that, you know, don't seem to have a bag, I have a trouble with because I'm like, you know, I kind of want to see what's in the bag. Yeah, and there's some people that I I'm like I don't know who that guy is. And it's my only real criticism of comics, even the hackiest comics in the world. If I can see who they are, yeah, then I'm like, well, you know, he's the real deal because he's he's putting himself up there. It's interesting. Like I was, ta- I talked to Anihid for a long time last night. I Ira Glass's wife, yeah. Anihid Alani, and she, who you're friends with as well. And she she made this point that you we've met a couple times. I'd like to think we're friends. I I I I'd like she, to be friends with them. I'd like because I I see that you probably go to dinner parties and stuff. Right? You guys have dinner together? Come on over. We'll have something to eat. I have dinner. My wife and I have dinner with Ira and Anahid sometimes, uh, for sure. Yeah. But we don't, no, dinner parties, no. No, but I mean, like, I don't have dinner with anybody. Yeah. I cook here at the house. The girl. You don't, it, it doesn't seem like you want friends, though. I mean, I think Al Madrigal said that on his episode where he goes, he came here and he goes, I don't need, do you? He goes, I'd come over. You know, he's no, like, he I, I he's allergic here. to cats. Oh, is that what he like, said? So he oh, comes okay. over to the house and like within three minutes, he's like, I gotta get, get out of here. Oh, okay. But I've gone to his house with his kids and I've had, you know, I like to do that, you know, but I- But it I, seems but, like you don't really want friends. It seems I've, I've like had, that. I've had, a bad exp- I've, I've had bad experiences. With, uh, with friendships in a way. I've become too demanding and I, I have to temper that. You know, I have to understand that people have lives and their life isn't dedicated to being there when I need them exactly when I need them and I and I I don't think I've tried lately you know like I you know uh like one time I remember Chuck Sklar you know I was freaking out because I decided that we were best friends and I was you know having some sort of weird panic and you know he wouldn't engage or help me and I was like going yelling or something and he goes you have a very expansive personality I don't know what that means but I, I for some reason I never forgot it because like I feel like I'm a little emotionally demanding and I have to temper that so as I get older you know, my friendships are, you know, there are people that I love a lot and a lot of people that don't know that I love them. Mm-hmm. Like everybody that comes in here that, I, that I, I, I've known for 10 minutes, I feel deeply connected to. Mm-hmm. You, uh, I do, because like I knew you when you were younger and, and I feel like, you know, we've been in the same, like I really somehow or another think that we, are, we actually are a community. 
and 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 I believe that I'm very emotionally connected to people. Mm-hmm. I could tell, like you know, when I I feel like we're fucking brothers. When, when and a lot of times I'm wrong about people, but I've decided on this emotional connection. You know, despite my my brain, like I feel connected to to most of the people I talk to, yeah. one way or the other, in a very deep way. And I have these weird expectations around that. It's unusual. Yeah. Uh, you know, like like I know that. You know, I, I I feel like I've never really tested it, but I imagine if I called you and I was in trouble, you would help me. Absolutely. I, I think I view it as a community as well. And I think that's, I was talking to Amy Schumer and Anthony Jeselnik are staying at the same hotel as me. And I ran into them last night at the hotel. And it does, when you when you run into comedians. I do blow with him. Anthony, yeah, he's a very funny guy. And um, when you run into comedians, I mean, we just we just started having drinks in the lobby. And it's a great feeling. You yeah, know, because there's like, no sort of like a weird kind of like, so you're what? You're selling yeah. uh, uh, computers now? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like you lock right you into pick, You lock right yeah, in. You pick yeah. it right up. And like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't talk to Amy or Anthony. Ever. But, right. Ever. You're, ever. But, but you're but right we, there. We pick it up right there. And, you, and I have a great time. Yeah, unspoken and, language. And, and Anthony said to me, he goes, because I go, you were good on that roast, because I, I, I didn't know what roast it was, but he was funny on some roast. The thing about Anthony is great. He's like, yeah, it was, right? You know, like, there's a part of him that-, that <laughs> Yeah, he's, no, he's aware. <laughs> he's aware of how, exactly. how well he did. I was really- Like, he's never like, you know, thank you, or really. He's like, yeah, I, I, I think I-, I Yes, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that went excellently. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and he he's, he goes, would you ever do a roast? And I fuck no, I can't handle the idea of people talking about me that way. I can't handle. I I can't take it. That was actually Jeff Garland's question for you, which is he he goes, how come you haven't had me back in the podcast? Is it because you can't take it the way you dish it? And and because uh, he thinks that he put you in the spot and kind of. And, and kind of I think that went both ways I'd, I'd have him back on but you know the thing about Jeff is is that uh, you know he's one of these you know, and there are comics like him and he's not unique in that but uh, no matter what show you're on with Jeff it's the Jeff show yeah and <laughs> Or and if it's Mark, it's the Mark show. I I'm, I don't know if that's really true. I I think I'm I'm more than happy to to take hits, and I'm more than happy to uh, be generous in 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 giving up the stage. Could you do a roast? I've tried. I you know I don't know how to insult unless I'm cornered. I yeah. could do a roast if the guy who I was roasting <laughs> made me feel like shit or threatened me somehow. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> you and I had this really funny bonding moment once where. Where I was at the comedy cellar and people were really laying, other comics were really laying into me hard and uh, and they were laying into you and you and I would say stuff that was witty. Right. But witty doesn't go anywhere oh, we were at the with table? those. Yeah. yeah. Witty yeah, doesn't yeah. go anywhere with those with, people. With Norton going, shut up, dummy. Shut up. Yeah. Shut up, yeah. stupid. Shut up. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and you and I were alone <laughs> a few minutes later and, and you said to me this thing that I totally related to. You go, you go, I can't. I can't roast people because when I roast people, all of a sudden it becomes serious. Because <laughs> they don't. Exp- and, that's, and that's how I. That's how I feel. Whenever I say, whenever I throw it back to people, they go easy. Yeah, yeah, what? Jesus, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not our format. Yeah. You know, there's a language to it, and there are guys who are good at it. That you throw it back and forth, but I'm going right for the jugular. Me too. And I, you know, and I'm like, it's all uh, you can do. Yeah. Well, no, it there, seems like the most logical progression is just go. Okay. Well, what's fucked up about this guy? Yeah. I'm going to make a joke about that. Right. And but uh, I think that we're missing some dance steps. No, we are. It's like uh, guys who play poker together every week. That there's a, a language to roasting. You know, even if you push it, you, you know, it's got to have a certain tone. And, yeah. And I, I'm not good at that. 
Amy Schumer's question last night when we were hanging out was, um, and she prefaced it by saying, I love Mark and think he's an incredible comic. More than, more, more than anyone else, I would want him to describe the most awkward sexual experience he's ever had in the road. Okay. All right. Uh, we can do that. <laughs> I got to figure it out. God, the most, what is she, how did she phrase it? She said, um, sh- uh, Amy Schumer's question was, uh, let me find it here. By the way, Maria Bamford, she just a well wish on your 200th episode. Mark, you are providing a meaningful service for fellow comics. You are a comedy industry whistleblower on the hidden issues of hotel room loneliness, masturbation, and cookie intake that have gone too long unreported, and you've become the great man that your cats have always wanted you to be. Thank you, and please give me a T-shirt, Maria Bamford. Okay, I'll give her one. I saw her this morning. So how did Amy Schumer phrase that? Amy Schumer's question was... Uh, more than anyone else, I would want Mark to describe the most awkward sexual experience he's ever had on the road. Well, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a freak. Really, I, you know, I, I don't find myself in, you know, situations that are, um, uh, y- you know, y- you know, too, uh, you know, sexually weird. Um, but you know, obviously, there's been some awkwardness early on. There was a time where you know, when I was married and or with somebody and I remember I was in LA doing coke and I ended up in a hotel room with a waitress and we were having you know this great sort of like you know when you're on coke you have, we, you, you earn your sex because mm-hmm. it's no easy trick to get mm-hmm. a, a hard on when you're all coked up but somehow but once you get it look out <laughs> and you know we're in this thing and and it's fucking insane and it's going great and i had no idea that she was literally marking me yeah and i think she did it intentionally like she was pinching my sides like i woke up and i had these weird bruises all over my side she had scratched me up wow and i think it was really to send me home and to teach me a lesson you know like mm. explain that to your girlfriend yeah and 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 at that time, like I literally had to make it look like a rash. Yeah, and that was pretty awkward and sad yeah. and fucked up and an asshole thing to do. But there have been some pretty great, you know, uh, blowjobs in in liquor storage cabinets. Uh, there's been uh, you know sex in offices. Uh, there's been um, uh, <laughs> you know cars. You know rides home from clubs. How, how much of the sex stuff? Is is why you got into comedy? Is it part of it? No, I never thought of that. A lot of guys are like, "That's an easy way to meet girls." I'm like, I never assumed that girls would like me anyway. That's what Lucian always said. Lucian Hold, who's the original booker of the comic strip, who loved you, passed away a few years ago. Yeah, um, he, God, it took him a while. When I first auditioned, he's like, "I've already got enough angry white guys." Yeah, no, he told me he already had Jim Gaffigan, Todd Berry, and oh, Jeffrey yeah. Ross, so uh-huh. he didn't need me. Yeah, and then he great. became my manager later, but. He um, he said, you know, there's the comedians who who do it for the women, and there's the comedians who do it for the art. And and which which one of those do you think you are? Oh, definitely the art, if that's possible. Yeah. I, I, you know, the the women thing always surprised me. Do you think that there are great comedians who do it for the women? Oh yeah. Who? Um. You think like Pryor did it for the women? No, I I, I think that. 
Hicks? No, definitely not. I, I, every time I encounter the guys who do it for the women, I always go, eh, he could be better. Oh, well, I, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I know precisely who they are, but I think a lot of people got into it for the lifestyle. That, you know, there was something about, you know, you know, having the freedom to not wake up, you know, to drink as much as they want, mm-hmm. to be one step ahead of the tax people. Yeah. You know, to be in a different town every night. Uh, that there's a lot of people that I think got into it because it gave them a freedom to live a life, you know, off the grid. Sure. And it, so there's definitely people that got in it for the life. I definitely got into it because, you know, I wanted to have a point of view. I wanted to share, you know, my thoughts on life. I wanted to have thoughts on life. Yeah. And I wanted to get the, you know, I wanted to make people laugh and, and, and blow their minds. Mm-hmm. You know, women really like, I, I've always, to me, women have always been like, sort of like, really? Great. Uh, you like me? <laughs> yeah. Well, now put up with me. Yeah, yeah. It was never like I never, I are, never knew how to get laid. Are comics capable of being good in a relationship? I mean, I was in in a romantic relationship. I went to visit my ex girlfriend, who is I was. We were engaged. We were going to get married. I was terrible. I fucked around. It was it was a bad scene. Yeah, bad part of my life. I talk about it a lot in Sleepwalk with me, but. I recently was I visited her and her family and I said to her I was like why did you stay with me why I mean I was terrible like why why did we were we together 6 years and she said the worst thing that I think a comic can hear she what? goes you know we had a lot of laughs uh but that's but that it's not the worst thing you can hear. It is because you because that's what people pay you for. So it's like, but it's not that kind of thing. Yeah. you have to. But you comparing yourself to to people that live you know uh, lives that you know are full of structure and a job and everything else. The truth of the matter is, we have a lot of freedom. You know, we can talk like no one else talks. You know, on stage and off. There's a certain pass we get. Yeah. And if there's women that are, are attracted to that, the type of uh, of good time and attention that they get and also the type of lifestyle that they're involved in is is unique and it's a little exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that with some of us. Yeah. But oddly, the, like to get back to Schumer's question, you know, the most awkward thing, sexual experience I had was we, you know, with this woman that I'm with now. I mean, I got an email through my website basically saying, I want to fuck you. And because I was, you know, not married and I could do that, I was like, for sure, let's do that. Yeah. And when I went up there and I met her and I didn't really remember, I'd met her once before, I didn't remember what she looked like. And I meet her in Portland. She comes up for the comedy festival. I go to her hotel and literally I walk in. It looked like she had brought every item of clothing that she had. There were clothes all over the place. Mm-hmm. It was just a fucking, look like a hurricane hit the place. And there was this cute girl that was like, hi. And I'm like, right in it. You know, I'm like, okay. <laughs> Yeah. And and it was great. It was so connected. And I, I see the thing about me is like I've never been very passive sexually. I don't know how to have, you know, recreational sex that isn't, you know, I need to connect with somebody's fucking being. You know, I'm not a guy that can be like just sort of like, yeah, you'll do. Yeah. You know, I, I you know, I need to really be intensely connected. Mm-hmm. And and that's not what people expect out of a one night stand. So, you know, when I get in like if I'm with somebody sexually, I'm go- I'm going deep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not just sexually, you know, I, yeah. you know, I needed to be fucking yeah. life altering. Yeah. And, and, and because of that, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've hurt some, you know, I've hurt some feelings and, yeah. uh, you know, be- because with that comes, you, you know, probably a lot of people, uh, women you've been with, that was the first time that they've been with someone, a guy who's emotionally open. Yeah. And that, so they're like, I found him. Yeah, that's right. I found my guy. That's right. 
Yeah, that's that's right. And and that was the th- I was that was my trouble with being single before I I met my wife, is I was like, oh, this will be great. I'll be yeah, single on the yeah. road, and every fucking week, I would meet someone, and then it'd be like I'd meet a girl who go, well, I found my guy. Yeah, and I'd be yeah. like, oh no, I'm no, just I gotta yeah, go to yeah, the thing. Yeah. And no, I'm and, like this all the time. Yeah, <laughs> with, and, with anybody. And it was always a, <laughs> always a disaster. Always, and I realized that fundamentally, it wasn't who I I could be. Yeah, you know, I I mean like. Yeah, during the you know the podcast and during uh, you know before I, I locked down with this chick and uh, you know during that period where I was divorced, I you know I definitely took advantage of 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 the fact that you know I didn't really realize it when people would say like I never because I don't think I have much game. You know, I can't just walk I'm into sure a bar. I'm sure of it. Yeah, I can't just walk into <laughs> a bar. You know, where people don't know me. Yeah, and no, say like oh, I'm going to work that. Chick, oh yeah, you know? forget it. But like I never gave much credence to the fact that I did have some celebrity. You, you know, I never really thought of it that way. I still thought like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Wait, this girl likes me. Mm-hmm. You know, without thinking like she might have been resonating with who I was on stage or listening to me or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I never ever thought that was why I got women, which was stupidity on my part. But uh, but definitely I, I I got around a bit. And but I I do have my my sexual needs are dwarfed by my emotional needs. And, you know, and I do, you know, seek to do a good job. Like I'm very hung up on, you know, like you know, making sure a woman like gets off and, you know, is like has great sex. So that mixed with my emotional needs that are always there is, you know, it can be a misleading combination. Mm-hmm. Did you get, uh, oh, Todd Barry says, have you ever thought about doing a Michael Moore 60 minutes style ambush interview like flying to Omaha kicking down the door of a comedy condo and ask a bunch of questions to a comic while he's making a BLT that's a good idea <laughs> thank you Todd I will do that Todd. what's going on in here <laughs> I'm sorry I'm with I'm with WTF please just you know put the sandwich down I just want to ask you a couple questions yeah that's a good idea thank you Todd I I emailed Eugene he couldn't oh actually you know Eugene did end up coming through the question um, but it was it was stuff that we covered already. Eugene, Michael Ian Black, Mike, Michael Ian Black asks, "Why are you such a consistent dick to me?" Is he asking himself that? He's asking you. He's one of the nicest guys in show business, Michael Ian Black. I'm sorry, I believed the persona for years. I believed that he was the guy he is on stage, and that's who I usually am engaging with. And it wasn't until recently that we got past that, and I think we've gotten past that. Maybe I need to do a long episode with him. Yeah. Maybe, because I just always assumed that he was a dick. Yeah, he's such a sweet guy. Did, was he always a sweet guy? I've asked him. He and I have done some college gigs. We have the same agent, and so we've spent some car trips together, and I said to him the similar thing. I was like... You seemed like an asshole. You seemed like you're completely aloof and you were thrilled with yourself and all this stuff. And so I was always like, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah. And now I meet you and you're just the salt of the earth guy. And it was, what was I wrong? Well, what happened? And? And he claims that that's, that's always who he was. He was just shy. Shy seems to be an alibi that a lot of people claim on this show. <laughs> Dane, Dane claimed shy, I noticed. Dane, I, th- I found his... Your interview with Dane, I found I found Dane to be very endearing. It's, I was of like, course, yeah, that guy seems saying. nice. This is a good job. David Cross says, "I would say that I 
wish Mark well and that I, I can't believe, what was it, 22 years ago back in Boston, he kept saying to anybody who would listen that someday he'd have his own podcast. No one knew what the fuck he was talking about. He was drinking. Yeah. And con- he and, and would constantly have to, we'd have to tell him to shut up. Yeah. Now look, he's totally right. His question is, what does he consider to be more of his tr- true mortal enemy, his cock or his brain? My brain. <laughs> That's an easy one. Yeah. No, I, you know, my cock needs a lot of help from my brain. <laughs> so it starts there. Yeah. Sue Costello, um, Sue Costello says, well, what are you doing differently to take care of yourself so that you can actually enjoy your success? I, I'm not letting myself think too far ahead and then reacting to those thoughts as if they're a reality. Oh, man. That, n- not wiser words have been said. That's a really good idea. That's the, that's the, that's the death of me all the time. I'm four steps ahead. And yeah, your I, brain is making stuff up for you to freak out about. Yeah, because <laughs> we desire the anxiety. Is that what it is? No, I don't think it's about desire. I, I think it's it's preemptive. It's a defensive mode. You're pre we're pre- preparing for the worst. Yeah, and you know, quite honestly, the worst you know, might not might, happen. Yeah. It probably won't. But yeah. you're all prepared for it. And then a lot of times you enter that thing that you've prepared for as if it's going to be the worst thing ever, and it could be a great thing. God, it sounds so healthy. What I just said. Greg Fitzsimmons asks, oh, good. what's your favorite flavor of Ben and Jerry's? Um, I fucking like the peanut butter cup. It's fucking pure and simple. You know, I went through a, a Cherry Garcia thing for a while, and then, you know, I, I do, uh, I tend to, you know, I the peanut butter cup's very satisfying because yep. you get those big peanut butter cups and the peanut butter ice oh, cream. Love it's, that. It's good. He also well wishes... That um, Greg Fitzsimmons, that people will one day listen to the archives of WTF, which I think I'm sure is true, will happen, and that Barry Katz will come to you and ask you if you're interested in management. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out a way how to get one of those fuckers on the show. Barry Katz, Barry or Dave, but you know they're so cagey. You know, just Dave, by nature, Dave would never come on the show. I've talked to him about the show every time I mention the show. You know, Dave, Dave said Becky, it when I played he, the first he, he show. He shrinks. To him. He shrinks. He's like, uh. Yeah, he doesn't want to be mentioned on it. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to hear about it. The first time I brought the original WTFs into my manager, and, and we put it on, I said, "Just go to the website and you play it." Within three minutes, he goes, "I don't get it. Where's the WTF? I don't get it." That's what Dave Becky said. Yeah, I don't get it. Oh God! And I'm like, "Just wait. It's an interview show." But I, you know, like uh, whatever. Oh, that's show. What, uh, Michael Showalter asks if you could interview anyone dead or alive, who would it be, and what would you ask? I, I would, I, I I'd like to interview Pryor. I actually like to interview more black comics in general. <laughs> uh, I just don't. I don't seem to be. They're. I don't know how to. Well, the Patrice interview is great. Yeah, but I'd like to interview Kevin Hart. I love to interview Hughley. Yeah. I'd like to interview Earthquake. Yeah. You know, but I, but I don't know if this is their bag. Those yeah. guys are all alive, by the way. I know. No, <laughs> I, I, I was just having a, a bit of white guilt. Um, I'd like to interview Pryor. I think Kevin Hart will come in. No, I think he would too. I just got to figure out how to get hold of him. Um, I'd like to interview Pryor because he he had such a profound impact on me as a as a a pre comic. Yeah. Uh, In in and I and I and I'd really like to you know just talk about that the the sort of weird you know meeting of comedy and pain. 
in, would, in a general way. Would Pryor like you, do you think? I remember hearing stories about Pryor from, like, Lucian. He said that he would come into the comic strip, you know, far past his, you know, when he's very, very famous, and he would kind of sit in the back of the room, sunglasses on, leather jacket yeah. on, his very yeah. quiet presence. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he seemed very kind of elusive and, and, and uh, I guess, aloof. Well, I think that's a lot of what you're seeing up there is this sort of, like, you know, shattering of, you know, like, I think he was a lot of different selves. Yeah. Like, I think that even when you read his autobiography... You know, it's written in almost like a childlike prose. Oh, I love that book. Yeah, it's a very interesting book. Um, People should dig that up. If any comedy nerds listening to this, yeah, prior convictions. Yeah, it's out of print. Yeah, you have to find it on eBay. But yeah. man, that's one of the best reads you can have in comedy. Because did you get that sense that it almost felt like a ten-year-old in some places? Oh like, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, and there was sort of a a, a, a sort of like a, a childlikeness to him at the core of all this that I'd like to speak to. <laughs> yeah, you know, and his story is so interesting, and you know, and I'd also like to you know uh, you, you know interview Lenny Bruce in in a way that'd be like you know come on, yeah, how much of this was a gimmick for you? Really? Yeah. What do you think was a gimmick? Well, I I think that once he you knew he was on to something, you know, that I don't think his stream of consciousness was a gimmick and I don't think that his reality was a gimmick, but I think there was part of him that knew he was getting over on something. That you know, that once he became, you know, once he be he became what everyone thought he was, I would like to know what that pressure sort of drove him to do. I'd also like to know You mean you know, in terms of like drug use and, and Well, no, just sort of like, you know, he, he had to feed the myth of Lenny Bruce. He was in that weird position to where he was a, a cultural icon at a shift of the, you know, of the cultural paradigm yeah. and and sort of redefining what 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 uh, free speech was and what comedy was. Yeah. And that once he became right. once that became expected of him, you know, how what, much how much was he fulfilling the character of Lenny Bruce? Right, and how and what that, you know, what were what were the burdens of that? Yeah. It's interesting though like I mean th- this is a question we were hitting on earlier but I think it's an important question which is what what are you holding back what what's your th- what, everybody has a secret even if they're an autobiographical comedian what's the thing that you're not saying I mean in what way are you fulfilling Mark Marin when you're on stage and and holding back a certain aspect of Mark Marin that sounds completely ridiculous because I said Mark Maron three times in a sentence. I'm, I'm holding back that you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm being serious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what my mom always says. My mom always says to me, she goes, "You comedians are so serious." Well, I'm the only comedian she knows. <laughs> that I'm like, you know, this is I'm being very, this is I'm being serious. Why are you laughing? Which brings me to Conan's question, and maybe we'll end on this, which is a great question: is who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> I'm sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that somehow or another, I, you know, I, I found some small bit of success off of the grid here. You know, that's a, that, it's an interesting question coming from him, you know, because I can see him saying that. He he set it up by saying, you know, I've known Mark for many years. Yeah, and, yeah. And I love Mark. And my question is, who the fuck do you think you are? I, I, yeah, I don't want to be trite and say, you know, finally, I, I, who the fuck I think I am is exactly who I am. Finally, I think so. And and it took a long time for me to to be that. I think that if you would have asked me that at another point in my life, it'd be like, yeah, oh God, I know. 
I wish I could just, you know, get under this, you know, get rid of this, whatever facade this is, this angry guy or this, you know, pompous guy or this political guy or, you know, because I thought all of those were, you know, they were just shields. And I, I, I think that, you know, right now I'm, I'm about as shieldless as I can be. So whoever the fuck I am, uh, I feel like it's as close to me as I've ever been. And, and, I, and, and I'm relieved that, that I can accept that. Yeah. That's it. Was there that sense of competition, though, that you needed to do something more intelligent? No. Oh, that's good. No, I didn't have that. I, I, it, clearly, you're, you're working through some personal issues through me. Did you have that? Why are you taking the other side of everything I say? I'm not. I'm just you saying You are. I'm almost... I, Why did you want me to do this interview if you don't think I know anything about what you're asking me I'm, about? I'm just telling... You're done? I'm done. We were having a good conversation. Oh, come on, Gallagher comics at the comedy store who don't like me I really want you to know this seriously I have a couple of friends who want to come and beat the shit out of you for real like fuck you up and I tell them not to because for whatever reason let, let me not interpret my own behavior you know I may be a dick on stage but that, that's not why I'm so like I want those people to know that you know despite of what you think I, I, I have you know, stopped bad shit from happening. There, there is a line, so to speak. You know that I won't, that I won't cross. The only thing negative I ever said about you, ever, when anyone brings you up, is that like I say that guy doesn't really bother me. I don't know why everyone's angry at him. He doesn't really right. bother me. He's an empty vessel full of fuel. And people would come to me and say, "Hey, do you ever bump into Mark?" And I go. That guy is like an ominous demon. There's like, and I would say dark things about you. Kids are supposed to cry when they're born, but she seemed angry to me and upset. Like I expected, just oh, you know, when a kid's crying in the delivery room, everybody's yeah. everybody's smiling. Yeah, ah, oh, look at her cry. You yeah. know, but I was really upset for her. <laughs> yeah, and um, they put her on this little table and they're putting stuff around her. <laughs> Sorry, it's all right. unexpectedly emotional. <clears throat> Water's good. It washes away your love for your children. So you can <laughs> talk without a shaking voice. Did it take a lot out of you? It did, and, and I'm really happy with it, and I'm happy with how it was reviewed, but I don't think it was like a... Se- I'm not for everyone, uh, no, I, it turns out. Yeah, I've always I find seemed that to know that. Found that up. I find that about me as well. It was a, an eclectic mix, you know, and allowed, you know, like weird comedy, like Freaky Ralph, who eventually set himself on fire. To close? No, to, to end his life. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's the ultimate closing. But seriously, I'll be here till five minutes from now. God, man, you're killing yourself. Oh, oh shit. fuck. Yeah, to close, only a comic would go. To close? How, did you see the first and second it's show? It's, it's not an opener. Oh, God. That's the terror of joy. If I enjoy this as com- you know as completely as I as I want to, yeah. it's gonna hurt when it goes wrong. Yeah, and the and the mistake is it hurts already. Yeah, like keeping shut down is what really right. hurts. Right, and so it doesn't actually make sense, and you have to think about it all the time to know that's what's happening. Like, huh? I'm not actually enjoying this. Yeah, and if you're thinking about it, it, you won't, it stops it from happening. Yeah, and then you're not present. Yeah, because you're waiting for a punch. That's yeah. how I feel like. I, I feel like I have my dukes up all day long, 
looking for someone who's going to punch me. And here's the thing. No one no. ever punches me. <laughs> this has been the 200th episode of Mark Marin's What the Fuck podcast. I'm Mike Verbiglia, and uh, that's Mark Marin, and we're signing off. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thank you. Thank you.